out here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation, which in itself is a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Like an embarrassment riddle inside a <laughs> Embarrassment prism. enigma? <laughs> yeah. Or an enigma machine of embarrassment, Ben. Yeah. Is Star Trek cool to like now? Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't really, like, I think if this show was on, we've talked about this before, if it was on a thing that anybody actually had, I think it would be cool to like. The thing is, it's it's never been cool to like a CBS show. <laughs> <laughs> that much we know for sure. Yeah. <laughs> How confused would an old be turning on CBS and finding this after, uh... This doesn't have young Sheldon in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's too loud. <laughs> hey, where's the beat? Some old lady reaches for her giant buttoned remote. <laughs> and it turns out it's actually her giant buttoned wireless telephone. Yeah. Uh, here we are, man. Episode three of season two of Star Trek Discovery. Let's get right into it. It's a big episode. Point of light. How much did we know about this show in episode three of season one? I think we were still really catching up, you know? Like we'd yeah. had the battle of the binary stars. But uh, but I think episode three was when we met the disco, right? Yeah, it feels like uh, it's a different challenge, right? To, es- to establish and maintain conflict when you know all the characters we don't have to bother with exposition in season two we know (laughs) these guys i mean we know some of them we don't know all of them yeah i think the point adam is that context is for kings and (laughs) that was the third episode of season one so uh, (laughs) so we've got plenty of that we i feel quite kingly here in season two sure do this uh, this episode kind of starts. Uh, Burnham is very concerned about Spock. She's doing uh, she's doing hologram science in her in her lab or whatever. This is a space that uh, that is off of the bridge. It's the room that used to be the standing desk for Captain Lorca. We were wrong. I don't know if it was the last episode or the episode before about them knocking down that wall and like changing what room the ready room was for the captain. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, standing desk Lorca room has been converted into this room that uh, Michael Burnham is in. Do you think that the wall that they knocked down is also the lab that had the tardigrade in it? It's it's pretty familiar feeling. I mean, one, one thing we're sure about is that that wall was load-bearing. <laughs> yeah, they had to put in a beam. <laughs> she walks out of this room and into a hallway that suddenly goes dark in a way that seems like uh, some kind of horrifying situation is going to happen, but it's actually kind of like a night run for cadets, it seems like. The people in the command training program, among whom Tilly is one, uh, are are doing a half marathon around whatever section of the ship this is. And um, Tilly uh, actually gets kind of stopped up by her invisible friend, 
May, who, uh, this is a much more nightmarish appearance of May, I would say. Because of the flashing lights? Yeah, there's, like, flashing lights, and they're doing a lot of, like, you know, horror film camera movement and, like, using a clip twice. Don't you remember? I feel like the officer training program is selecting out people who may be epileptic <laughs> with, the, with the use of these lights during their half marathon. That's not yeah. fair. Well, I, yeah, I thought a little bit about, like, I mean, Tilly winds up kicking everybody's ass despite having stopped for a while to yell at her invisible friend. And uh, made me think, like, what if you're an alien that just your species is no good at running? Right. Are you out? I don't know. What if you're what if you're a slug-like alien? Yeah. And you just goo yourself around. Is that an yeah. advantage? I don't know. And I mean, like marathons, typically, like the like men and women are timed differently. So, like, wouldn't that extend to different species also? Hmm. Why is it all humans? Why is Saru impressed? He could run 10 times as fast as the rest of these people. Tilly gets pretty severe with May in this moment and uh, and says something like she qualifies May's appearance by calling it the symptom of an unfit mind. It felt to me like by using terminology like that, she may have had an experience of mental illness in her past. You know, like there's, it's not just, the uh, discomfort of seeing something that isn't there, it feels like there's another level to what she's experiencing, which is like kind of the dread of something returning. And I don't mean in the short term, like this is something that she's seen the last couple episodes. I I don't know. I kind of got that feeling. Did you? Yeah. I mean, it's weird to self-diagnose in that way, especially right. in a Star Trek context. But yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe we'll find out more about that. But uh, the ship runs into a ship that initially doesn't identify itself. So you get a little scene on the bridge that seems like like this could be something intense, something that they have to you know raise shields and power up the phasers for. But uh, it is not that. It's just a it's just a previa with Michael Burnham's mom on it. So <laughs> it was like. Why is uh the most benign thing they could ever run into? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> like, uh like, sir, it has its turn signal on. It says it's here to pick up uh the science officer from soccer practice. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be blocking the turnaround. <laughs> um, uh, it brought orange wedges. <laughs> um yeah, so I I wasn't really sure why, uh, you know, what from a storytelling standpoint was behind the decision to make this seem so intense, but uh, but yeah, it it's uh, I guess Amanda is flying somewhat incognito. She's not, she doesn't announce herself, and even do, they don't even like transmit who is beaming over. So Captain Pike is under the assumption initially that who's beaming over is going to be Ambassador Sarek. Uh, but it's not. It's uh, it's Michael Burnham's mom, and uh, what she has done is gone and stolen the the file out of Spock's uh, medical office, Seinfeld style. <laughs> but it was in pen. Yeah, who knew Amanda had it in her? It's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> ben, you said something that is really like at the core of this entire episode. You asked this question, like, 
And I think the question was something like, I don't know why they made it so exciting. (laughs) This is an episode with basically an A and a B story that's just about family. And holy shit, like they managed to sex up both stories with as much excitement as they possibly could. And a C story that's about like somebody that essentially getting like a fungal infection from using a communal shower. This episode is directed by Olatunde Osunsanmi, and this is his second rep as the director of Disco. And wow, there will be no regular establishing shots in this episode ever. <laughs> like, it is all Dutch angles, it is all rotations around uh, characters. <laughs> this guy is really, uh, really using some flourishes. He's out freaksing freaks. Yeah. Even Frakes is like standing off to the side, like, all right, man. Like, <laughs> we got shots. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if this is your script and this is your episode, I think that's probably part of the challenge, right? Like, you've, you've got to make it interesting. Yeah. And I think that, like, this does feel a lot like a connective tissue episode. Yeah. Like, uh, in in the way that there was so much setup and exposition at the beginning of the series in season one, this feels like they need to establish some, some new truths about the world. And, and a lot of that is actually following storylines that we have already got a lot of information on. Like, um, like what, what is going on with Ash Tyler slash Voke is a big question that is answered in this episode. Yeah, and one thing that kind of isn't is what seems to be pitched as the main story. Like this whole whatever happened to Spock thing, uh, that story is advanced very little in this ep, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just a it's just a conversation between Michael Burnham and Amanda that does not. Uh, yeah, they just cut back to it a few times. It doesn't. Yeah, it's not a uh, it's. It's not a major concern. The Chrono story is the big story. And uh, they just cannot figure out how to serve a great Euro there. (laughs) Uh, The Empire reunification is hard when you're a lady chancellor, clearly. Uh, And it's made even harder when your partner is a human being. And, And that's in spite of like Ash pitching a great starship concept. To the uh, assembled houses, like, yeah. we get a nice bit of show and tell there. Like, Ash Ash knows how to put together a good PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> like, you want to show the D7. You don't want to just tell people about it. Yeah, and it's, a, it, it's the design of the cruiser that I think they had in TOS, right? Yeah, yeah. It's OG. It's pretty great. Kolshaw is, uh, is one of the Klingons that is pretty angry about the ascendancy of Laurel and her use of uh, of a human-looking Klingon as her torchbearer. Do you He's, think they hate the human sidekick more, or do they hate that she's a woman? Like, their, their racism and their misogyny know no bounds. Because <laughs> uh, uh, Kulsha is standing off in the corner, and as Ash kind of finishes his little TED talk, is like... This is a war crime! <laughs> a human should not be building a ship for us! How can we trust him? Who is paying Laurel to give this man a job? I thought it was great that it was Cole's dad. 
and it's not just Cole's dad. It's the same actor in the loaf. That's awesome. I think anytime contractually you can you can have it written that you will play not only the character you've been hired for, but all relatives. <laughs> if if your main part is killed off, you have yeah, to do it. That's called a clump clause, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so great work by kenneth mitchell yeah he he also brings up the seven signals so this isn't just something that starfleet is aware of they, he has interpreted this as a an omen about how bad it is that laurel is in charge yeah and he's just kind of baiting them like he basically won't stop uh kind of pimping them on just about every issue and they're like dude we're not even at war anymore like you got to get the crazy war paint off your face got to knock it off you got to get with the program and this even turns into like a bit of a fist fight where ash like wipes the paint off of his face but uh this guy's definitely set up to be our big uh our big antagonist but it's not like he's the only problem that ash tyler slash voke and laurel have that's right things are not exactly hot in the bedroom for them <laughs> yeah and it's kind of it mirrors the the bedroom problems that uh, befell Ash and, and Michael Burnham, right? It's yeah. Like, like uh, once you know the truth about him, for for Michael Burnham, it's a turn off, and he kind of is having like a tough time feeling entirely comfortable in his own skin with Laurel also. It doesn't feel like his personalities have fused together. Like his feelings are really... Uh, they're either Voke or Ash feelings because like he feels the abusive past of of an Ash Tyler whenever Laurel comes in for a smooch, you know? Yeah, it's it's like he's caught between these two worlds, but they're like also inside of him. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that there's not one personality at play. It really is too. Like a couple of times he talks about like, oh yeah, I like dipped into one of the memories from Vogue. It's not, he doesn't consider it one of his memories. Yeah. And that's such a interesting way to put it, right? Like it's a choice. Yeah. It fleshes out what it means to be Ash Tyler in a way that I think is instructive. I mean, if it is a choice, it also must be far more hurtful to Laurel because if he could choose to love her using... Uh, the totality of Voke's memories to do so. like Yeah, just be the Voke part of you. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I had assumed that once he went to Kronos, like, that's the f- that's the switch that he would flip, but right. it doesn't appear to be the case. Um, yeah. The Klingons really fucked this up. <laughs> <laughs> when they made Ash Tyler, that, that it did not work according to their plan. No. No. Um, he's also having a tough time getting along with her family, you know, it's that, uh, you know, like none of the in-laws give him much respect. Laurel's uncle, uh, doesn't give a shit about him, won't even talk to him. It's tough. It's, it's, it's tough to get along with your spouse's family sometimes. Yeah, it sure is. Like you got a whole new family and all of the, the familiness of that without like having a lifelong relationship with them. That feeling of us against the world can be such a good catalyst for a relationship, but it is rarely something that lasts for any length of time that can get you through shit like this, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, us against the world doesn't work when you're trying to run a government. <laughs> They're really under siege. Yeah. 
and uh and it really comes from all sides like her her house is like you know she she tries to calm him down but it's clear that they don't like her uh messing around with him and uh basically everybody else on the planet wants her job and yeah. wants wants to go through him to get it tough times for uh for Laurel and Ash Tyler on the USB drive that Amanda took are a number of files that boy really appear to decrypt slowly like if you were like it seems like it's decrypting at a speed that either of our computers would do it like <laughs> each image gets maybe a half a second yeah and like they had to get special dispensation from the captain to even unlock it yeah. Um, but when when they're told that like Spock is wanted for murder, but also like is that kind of weird, like how classified this is, because yeah. the the captain that they that they call on on the screen is who's uh, like, oh, I can't tell you anything about that. I can't tell you anything about how Spock murdered a bunch of people and is now on the run. <laughs> that would be terrible if I let a secret like that slip out. Right. Ah, it's too hot today. Everybody agrees that that's not. Spock's deal like if Spock actually did some murdering there must be some mitigating circumstance to explain why he did that and you know it could be that he's become a sociopath but it could be that he's wrongfully accused or being framed or there's something else going on there's not even a single percentage chance that they are in this to bring him to justice like it's weird that their entire motivation is to make sure that he's getting a fair deal yeah there's nothing like a long render time to give your characters an opportunity for exposition (laughs) and we get some of that between amanda and michael burnham as they uh reflect on the different experiences that spock and burnham had as siblings growing up and you get the picture that uh that there is a fair amount of, uh, you know, that concept of like nature versus nurture. Right. They really seem like the like a like a family that is testing that hypothesis because uh, Burnham was subject to true motherly love, while that was something that was uh, that was never offered to the Spock side of the sibling pair. Sarek had kind of a different different take on how they should raise the two kids so while burnham has a lot of that vulcan dogma in her she actually had like a caring parent in amanda whereas spock did not amanda's got some real regrets about this because spock is half human and therefore was kind of you know that they didn't treat that as being a a real factor in how his development might go like in business writing and stuff uh, there's the concept of like passive writing versus active writing. And right. Amanda, in her description of how she mothered her children, uh, uses a word that I thought was really interesting, which is uh, prevented. She was prevented from uh, showing motherly love to Spock in a way that I thought was really interesting. It indicates that she wanted to and did not due to external forces. You know, it wasn't like she was in lockstep with Sarek's philosophies on parenting. Like, that was a real conflict between them. Yeah, and uh, and we're starting to get more and more to the bottom of why this family is so fucked up and they have, you know, they just really don't communicate well. Yeah. 
Michael Burnham gets uh, a phone call from Ash Tyler, runs off to talk to him. And this is a very fun scene because they're using the 3D hologram phone call technology, but they show the same shot composition in both the Discovery and on Kronos. Right. And then they just kind of blend the shots at a certain point. Yeah. And I wondered, like, did did they build a set that was both rooms? Or is it a comp? It if it's a comp, it looked so good. Yeah, it looked. It dope. looked amazing. Here's the thing: like, if it's not a comp, I feel like they should have moved the camera just to further underscore that it was real. Right. The fact that it was locked off. Yeah. Made it enough of a mystery that I think it was a comp. You know what yeah. I mean? That's really well done, and they, like the way they like let the smoke from the Chrono side flow into the disco side is really cool yeah um and i also liked that his projection was like shitty and green the way they are on klingon ships like something about the klingon version of that technology is a little bit different yeah i like the visual language of them like it doesn't just start this way with them feeling like they're in the same room like you have to get there in the conversation yeah yeah like they begin separated and they end together. And this is a an episode that really drew a bright line under the idea that they are both characters that contain a duality and that is like like literally on the screen in this shot, you know? Right, like right. they build it right like that is uh <laughs> my my inner film studies geek was flipping out when that happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you like that Michael Burnham's ringtone was a triple sound? I when did his, when his call came. <laughs> Nicely done, Michael Burnham. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I mean, I feel like a little bit offensive to a Klingon, but <laughs> when uh, when Tilly calls, is it just like the Kathy Ack sound? <laughs> Speaking of Tilly, Tilly uh, has another element of her command training some kind of uh some kind of bridge hang where she's supposed to uh she's supposed to play captain for a little while. But uh, May is back in the back in the room and really won't let it drop. Uh, Tilly basically has a meltdown in front of the bridge staff and uh, and has to run out of the room and declares that she quits the command training program. The thing that May can't drop is that she's looking for the captain of the ship and when confronted with Pike, is not believing that that's him. May is looking for a short white mean captain. Yeah. Which is what I think most people who don't like Discovery are looking for in captains. <laughs> yeah, I want him to be more of a Gamergate type, like myself. This isn't, this isn't my Star Trek. <laughs> Where's my short, white, mean captain? Yeah. It's sad. The thing about Tilly is that like, she has the rep for sharing too much, but the reality is that she doesn't share things enough, like things that are actually important. Right, and... This is this is really compromising her ability to to do her job and participate in this program. And the way she plays this is crushing. You know, yeah. it, it, it the pain of that is it's super super close to the surface for uh, in in Mary Wiseman's performance. It's it's really gut wrenching. The idea that that she could ever be considered for this program to begin with seemed far-fetched for her before other people believed in her abilities 
and it just shows how like this was a major breakdown in public yeah and it's got to hurt so bad to kind of have her own doubts confirmed in this way her doubts about herself a great performance by uh mary wiseman here no i didn't i'm i she drove me to it i that doesn't make any sense i'm i'm not i'm not ash tyler discovers that Vogue and Laurel had a baby. <laughs> a secret baby. Yeah. Still having a tough time getting that paint off his hands when uh when Laurel's uncle introduces him to the to the secret baby. And they say it was grown ex utero, is that is that the term they use? Yeah. So it's like a vat baby that I guess Laurel had uh had grown outside of her body because she was too busy running uh running her war on uh, on the federation if voke as ash tyler had impregnated laurel would the baby have been half klingon half human because of the genetic alterations oh man it would have been a little kalar is ash still shooting klingon sperm i don't know man <laughs> don't ask me yeah i mean it tastes human <laughs> Tastes like pineapples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's uh, he's enjoying a lot of tiki drinks when he's not conve- convening the uh, the Klingon High Council or whatever. Lorel is having a bad day because she's had to disclose this to Ash, but uh, in a scene that proves female jealousy crosses all races and species, she's also pretty hurt by the idea that uh, Ash blew in a call to Michael Burnham uh, about their current situation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think partly jealousy, but also partly, like, her feeling of being in control is kind of undercut by that like if he is concerned enough about the viability of her chancellorship uh to to like call for help essentially yeah sort of uh sort of not a not a vote of confidence do you feel like the klingon dialogue is written far far differently than the federation dialogue because this is a scene that makes me think that it is I think this scene and most of the scenes between Laurel and Ash are a little clunky, and I think it's Shazad Latif and Mary Chifo's abilities as actors that, that make these scenes shine, and not the dialogue specifically. Because I think yeah. Klingons in, in Star Trek Discovery are written as very speechifying people in a yeah. way that is less so uh, over on the disco. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. With that, and and I think that uh, some of the other scenes kind of make that more evident when when other Klingons are present and they're also speechifying, yeah. And it's coming out of the mouths of less talented performers. It it feels a little, you know, arch villain with James Bond tied up on the on the table. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at with that too. I mean, I get the, I understand a a screenwriter's instinct to distinguish this race from the others in this way but it still can't help but clang in that james bond villain kind of way i wish there was a different way to do it i mean and the fact that they speak a different language should be sufficient right you know (laughs) 
Yeah, but they speak a lot of English to each other, and yeah. and and that's uh, that is also a little bit strange. Yeah. So speaking of James Bond plans, Cole Shaw, his war paint was was a bug, and yeah. when Ash rubbed his his face and got his fingers covered with the war paint, what he was doing was was bugging himself and all his conversations. And he had some pretty big conversations. Yeah. Because uh, he and Laurel kind of like make an agreement to go, to go like be the parents to this baby because neither of them has ever even met it. And, uh, and they go, they go into the, uh, into the like weird chapel <laughs> that the baby lives in apparently and discover the hung up dead body of Laurel's uncle and a hologram of Cole Shaw, who's uh, who's there to kind of gloat and Bond villain speech about how his evil plan worked. It's a pretty simple thing he's proposing. It, it's baby for the chancellorship. All she has to do is sign on the line that is dotted, and uh, the transfer will be complete. That scene happens in pretty short order. Like he shows up with the iPad with the with the contract that will, I guess, transfer power over the empire to him with a with a bunch of dudes with batleths and mechleths and uh there's some some brief uh ass kicking where laurel and ash tyler just shred most of his little henchmen i don't know why they don't shred him but he like i guess just waits in the corner for all of his all of his employees to die and then he uh and then he pulls out a taser like a double-ended Darth Maul taser and uh, and gets both of them. You know, he like gets her hand and pushes it against the touch ID on his iPad. It turns into stone, which I, I really liked. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I guess presumably now he's the boss. Uh, he is about to take Ash Tyler's head off when uh, a new player enters the game. Yeah, uh, Emperor Georgiou has beamed into the scene wearing a hooded cloak that makes her look like the robot Polly got as a gift at the beginning of Rocky IV. <laughs> and she's got drones with gore guns on them, and they splatter everyone. Yeah, everybody gets remicked in this scene. Wow. Except for Cole Shaw, who gets put in like a like a giant soap bubble. Yeah. And then... Uh, and then I think Ash Tyler gut, like gut stabs him. Yeah, fairly rugged scene. Do you think the use of a paralysis staff is a uh, is kind of a, a chicken shit move? That seems like a weapon without honor. Yeah, it does seem like a weapon without honor. That seems like a Batak would use that weapon. Yeah, what the fuck, Colshaw? I guess stealing a baby is an action that is without honor, also. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's rolling the honor dice on the whole baby stealing for the chancellorship scam. <laughs> Colshot threatens to kill a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we really talking about honor wise? Yeah, yeah. Fair uh, enough. Giorgio uh has a pitch to uh to give these two Klingons that she's rescued. She's like, why don't you t- start taking your chancellorship a little bit more seriously, Laurel? Like, this baby is too big of a liability, and Ash Tyler is too. Like, I think nobody would disagree when I say that 
Ash Tyler's presence in all these council meetings is undercutting your ability to like effectively lead the uh, the Klingons here. So, and who in the universe knows better about what it's like to be a female in leadership in a society where everyone is trying to kill you than Emperor Georgiou? Yeah, sort of great advice from a great advice giver. Yep, and and like I feel like the structure of the Terran Empire is not super dissimilar culturally from the structure of the prime Klingon Empire. Agreed. Yeah. So so they breach a deal and uh they're gonna do something that uh that cements Laurel's power now that uh one of her chief detractors is uh you know, has his guts <laughs> getting chewed up by a, f- a f- house fly on the floor of this uh of this patio that they're on. That fly's a nice touch. Yeah, I really like that. That fly is saying, we've got the money for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a did, big bucks move right there. Did they, they that's definitely a comp. Right? That's definitely a digital fly, right? Yeah, that's a comp fly. We have a little bit more uh, story building on the Red Angel in, uh, in Disco Land. Um, Sp- Spock has been seeing this red angel since he was a kid. And when the logic extremists blew up the school that Michael Burnham was going to, she ran away. And uh, Spock told everybody that a red angel told them where they could find her. And uh, nobody believed him then, but now Amanda is starting to believe it. And it, it sort of becomes clear in this that something, the red angel really connects Spock and Michael Burnham. Yeah, and it was interesting to know that the logic extremists weren't just a modern thing. Like, they've been in existence for a long time. And their threats to kill Michael Burnham as a youth uh, were part of that backstory. I think we saw some of that in the last season, but I think it was a little confusing because she also lost her parents in some kind of attack. And so it was like... The most pronounced way we saw that was on that shuttle that Sarek was on. Right. Anyways, this has all been pretty upsetting for Michael, but uh, she also has a very upset friend in Ensign Tilly, and she's uh, she's really there for Tilly uh, in this moment. Tilly is, like, just fresh off of kind of getting, you know, like wandering off the bridge and quitting the command training program after having a very public meltdown. And in talking to Michael Burnham, they actually kind of come up with the idea that maybe May is not a figment of Tilly's sick imagination, but in fact, some kind of external entity that is influencing her mind. Yeah. God, Michael Burnham's such a great friend. Like, given that what she's been through this episode, she snaps right up out of bed and, like, goes into triage mode for, for Tilly. Yeah, comforting somebody else even though she really needs somebody to comfort her in this moment. Yeah. That's not always easy to do. No, I mean, and it also looks like they're still roommates. Yeah, are they? I think they are. Or is Tilly just coming by to vent? I mean, Michael Burnham is lying in bed when she comes in, so that makes me think they are roommates. Yeah, I think so. Wow. I think that's a, that's a good arrangement they decided to keep. Sure. So may is something, Tilly. But I don't think she's a ghost. The uh, holding the the number three up on the hand 
of this scene is that May does not know what crying is and uh, Michael Burnham, like Tilly's kind of like interpreting May for Michael Burnham who cannot see her. Michael Burnham's like, wait a second, you were a teenage girl with this with this person and she doesn't know what crying is? Teenage girls cry across cultures. I know that as a scientist. Teenage girls do two things when they're upset. They <laughs> cry and they cut their own hair. <laughs> yeah. This girl doesn't know anything. Yeah. Get bangs, May. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of cut straight to engineering where... Like, Tilly is in an exam chair, and in very short order, Stamets has realized that a sentient fungus is in her. Yeah, and it, I love that this is a callback to that little speck that went into her shoulder in season one. I mean, yeah. I I think I would have just forgotten all about that, even though it definitely stood out, you know, when I watched it, that like, oh, that that is definitely planting something for later. Um, it's really fun to see that pay off. The thing that I didn't have totally locked in my head was that this was a spore from the mirror universe and not from the prime universe. Right. And it makes me wonder what she wanted with Stamets. And and it also makes me wonder, like, th- like does this spore slash creature or whatever factor into the Dr. Culber storyline? Like, Wilson Cruz is not in the opening credits of this, but Shazad Latif is, I think, in his place. Yeah. And I like that's really interesting to me that they're messing around with who is in that opening credit sequence, mm. um, you know, like concurrent with recording this episode, we just recorded our first episode of Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine about season four, and Michael Doran is in the opening credits. And in that era of television, that just meant like this is going to be a character this season, you know? Right. Like there's no there's no suspense in him kind of waffling on whether or not he wants to stay in Starfleet because you saw his name in the opening credits. You know he's he's here to stay. Star Trek Discovery does cafeteria credits. Yeah, it really does. If you will overlook this incident, I would like to continue to consider you my friend. That point about this being a mirror universe spore, I think is so connected to May's interest in who the captain is, a captain she describes as short and white and blonde and angry. Like, that's Mirror Universe Stamets. Yeah. And so her mission to find that guy and do what exactly seems pretty top of mind right now, but May's going to have a pretty hard time doing that as the as the ball of mucus she turns into once Stamets uh, pulls her out of Tilly's body. Yeah, how much do you think Mucinex paid for this product placement? (laughs) I mean, probably not a lot, because very few people get uh, CBSL access. (laughs) And Mucinex is not available in other countries where this is on Netflix. (laughs) A very gross effect. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of gross... Uh, back on Kronos, Lorel has produced the severed heads of Ash and her baby in an even better presentation than Ash had early on. <laughs> you start with a joke. I knew you guys were pretty blown away by the D7. Like, uh, I'll give you that. Ships are cool. But, but what about this John the Baptist head? <laughs> it is rugged. It really is. And she throws... 
Ash Tyler's head into the into the flame pit eventually, but that but she keeps the baby head in her hand for the rest of the speech. And the rest of the speech is basically like, I am not to be fucked with. She I uses am... it as a stress ball. Yeah. Don't call me Laurel. Call me Karen Pence. I'm your mother. I love that the assembled council boos her <laughs> as if uh, she's bombing at the Apollo. <laughs> this does not go over well in the room, and it did not go over well with me, Ben. I did not like this. Yeah? Yeah. But... Holy shit, those heads. By the end of her presentation, the thing that she's made clear is that she's constructed a story that more solidly keeps her in power. Right. The idea that uh, she had to kill Ash after finding he was attempting to kill her baby, and that Cole Shaw died saving her in the process. Right. Like, it's it retcons what happened earlier, and uh, in such a way that, that makes her position stronger in the council pretty shrewd move the button on the episode is a uh, is a crazy like mirror finished starfleet esque ship uh coming out of a sunset uh in orbit over borath the um, conversation is between george and ash tyler who is holding the baby He's not dead. They, like, synthesized a genetically identical head, both of him and the baby, and gave them to Laurel so that she could cement her power. This is Section 31. This is the Dirty Tricks section of Starfleet. And I guess, uh, like, I I thought a lot about that little clip that they released uh, over the summer, I guess it was, that was originally going to be in Season 1 of Emperor Giorgio now in prime universe getting recruited into section 31 right by leland and leland's there too yeah and i wondered if this was you know like i i imagine that a very small percentage of the people watching this show have seen that clip you know yeah so so this has to kind of do all the work of like saying what section 31 is and stuff but uh i thought it was Maybe not a great decision to release that clip because I thought it would have been a really fun surprise to have no inkling that Giorgio was going to show back up and and uh, and have this really knock me back on my heels. Star Trek right now really seems to be taking the position that they don't want you to miss it as a thing. Yeah. And, which is why we got all the short treks, which is why we got all of these uh, extra deleted scenes released around the time of the conventions over the summer. Yeah. I like that deleted scene that we saw back then, and I didn't think it took the power out of what we saw now, but it would have been interesting to have run it the way you describe, in that this is the first time we're seeing Leland and Giorgio and, and her situation post-recruitment. Right. Uh, they're giving... The unnamed baby, uh, the Superman treatment, they're going to beam it down to the Klingon monk planet of Boreth and allow it to be adopted down there. Yeah. That's going to be the plan for it, where it will never know its parents. Pretty wild. Did you like the episode, Adam? I did. Like, I really liked the episode. It feels like there was a lot that I did not like about it, though, for an episode (laughs) that I liked so much. I'm I'm just going to say the one thing I liked least, the electric guitar in the score uh, during the Klingon fight scenes and uh, when we arrive on the standing desk of starships at the end. 
Yeah, that doesn't really feel like the world. Yeah, get that electric guitar out of there, I think. Star Trek is a place, but the only guitars in Star Trek are $5 carnival <laughs> guitars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that uh, that new ship is cool. I I really like this episode quite a bit. I liked that... Uh, I like that Kill Bill fight scene we got with the Klingons, like <laughs> yeah. in the snow. That was so well done. That felt so expensive. That was a very high-value action scene. Yeah. And it had a fly on the guts at the end, so. What about you, Ben? I like the episode, too. It feels like one of those ones where the A, B, and C didn't have anything to do with each other. Yeah. And uh, I'm, that's not always my favorite kind of episode. Um and it does feel a little bit like a throwback to the many episodes in season one that felt more like connective tissue than their own discrete storylines. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like that is going to be, like, for whatever reason, season two doesn't feel like it's indulging in those as much. And I think if they are the salt that brings out the sweet, uh, I don't mind them as much. Hmm. Uh, one thing that is always sweet and never salty, Ben, are our priority one messages. Would you like to see if we have anything in the inbox? And our cum, because we eat so much pineapple. <laughs> yeah, let's check them out. <laughs> Jesus. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our first priority one message is from Mike, Mauk, Art, and his wife, Nads and Lil Vlad. <laughs> Messages for Chris Darshrimp Colgar, and it goes like this. Oh, it's got a parenthetical, Ben. It's it's as Mark Twain. Oh fuck. Why, dear Krista, you <laughs> are the best dungeon master of all time. Ugh. Now, uh, you remember when Mark stepped in a bear trap and then killed a goblin by shooting his penis off? <laughs> Only a creative genius would have crafted Ugh. that imagery. Ugh. Yeah, I'm sure you would think that, Mark Twain. God damn it. I love that we're at the point in our in the show and in our friendship that like our impressions we hate each other's impressions. <laughs> we hate them so much. Uh, was that was a challenge. Uh, if you'd like to send a priority one message uh, that does not feature Mark Twain. Uh, I would highly encourage you to do so. You go to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And uh, when they don't feature Mark Twain, they're a great way to support the continuing production of The Greatest Discovery. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, Nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. 
It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. Yeah, I wrote down Michael Burnham for her, her triple ringtone. We already yeah. talked about it, but uh, that really made me laugh. And the like, and the implications of ringtones in Star Trek, just as a general concept, really made right. me laugh. So that's uh, great. She's my Shimoda. How about you? Speaking of implications, I'm not sure exactly what this means, but my Shimoda is Giorgio. Mm -hmm. That scene at the end when she gazes down at the baby and then ever so slightly like breaks anger character. Like, she melts as a mother in that moment. Yeah, but she doesn't want him to see her doing that. As soon as Ash looks at her, like, she snaps back into cold emperor mode. Yeah. I, I thought that was great. Yeah. That was a low-key, really fun moment. 
and it may mean nothing, but uh, I like that Giorgio is having to act as if so much. And yeah. I like that that's not easy all the time. Well, and it's a funny, like, it's another nature versus nurture, right? Like, yeah. is, like are we all the same people in the different universes and it's just the scenario is different? Or, yeah. or is there something, like, inherently evil about her that has not yet been revealed? Star Trek doesn't like to answer big questions like that generally. And I wonder if by the time we start really telling the Giorgio story, whether or not it's in this season or in her own show, if that's going to be something that they make it about. Yeah. Well, Ben, what do we have coming up on the next episode? Uh, well, we got a little, um, a little edited package to, uh, to base our speculation on. It looks like the ship is cut in some kind of spider web and uh, Sabru is, uh, is very seriously ill potentially dying and uh, Tilly's covered in, uh, in snot looks like Saru is shirtless ill yeah uh, which is a very serious kind of illness I think yeah. anytime you have to go shirt off oh and uh, and Tignataro is gonna be in it yeah Got a glimpse of her great yeah welcome back Tig yeah uh, well I am really looking forward to that but uh, what I'm also looking forward to is Rob's 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 reading the credits take it away Rob's The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music and interstitials are by Adam Ragusia. You can support this show by heading on over to MaximumFun.org donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. When using social media, please use the hashtag GreatestDiscovery or GreatestGen. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.